they say Jesus rose from the dead. I think he said, well, um, I don't know. The young woman just said, I I don't really know what I believe. That's got to be represented with some of us here today. We're not sure exactly why we're here. But here we are. And um, at Door Creek, we do celebrate Easter. In fact, there's no reason to celebrate Christmas if Easter didn't take place. And so we believe that um, what you believe about the resurrection, about Jesus Christ, really matters. It matters for you, how you do life today. It matters for you how you think about life into the future out into eternity. And here's something I can tell you, that there's always been controversy surrounded, not with the death of Christ, but with his resurrection. We'll see that to be true in the first account that we read from Matthew's gospel. And so it shouldn't surprise us when a guy like James Cameron, the famed director of the movie Titanic, has this special, The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Maybe you saw it on Discovery Channel. And as Time Magazine reported it, it says that Cameron has brought God to Manhattan in a box. He's DNA tested him like the femur of a dinosaur. And as he talks about this sarcophagus that he discovered in some crypt there in Jerusalem, believed because of the inscriptions to be Jesus' family tomb, he says these are the bones, pretty sure about that. It's a pretty staggering claim. And he goes on to say that the inscriptions make us believe that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and had a son by him, her named Judah. Well, that kind of sensational claim coming out of Hollywood, not all that surprising for us, is it? We expect that kind of stuff from Hollywood. But we may be surprised to hear of a guy like Gerd Ludemann. He's a German New Testament scholar. He's written a book, and the title of the book goes like this, What Really Happened to Jesus? A Historical Approach to the Resurrection. And Ludeman, his thesis is, the tomb is empty because Jesus, his bones, his body rotted away. He he never was raised from the dead. These so-called appearances that his followers write about in the New Testament, that's just a figment of their traumatized imaginations. They're just hallucinations and visions. Let me tell you why it's important what you believe about the resurrection. And I'll take you to what the Bible says about the resurrection. So this is the Bible on the resurrection. And here's what the Bible says. If the resurrection didn't happen, then this word doesn't matter. In fact, here's how Paul puts it. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so too is your faith. There is no good news. The only news they would have to share is there was this good man who was a little deluded and deranged. He was a lunatic, but he thought he could die for the sins of all humanity and make things right between us and God and between us as human beings. That's all we have. We don't have a message, Paul says, and you don't have a faith because faith is only as good as its object. 
And if your object is Jesus Christ and he said, I'm going to rise from the dead and he didn't, then he isn't who he said he was. He's not the son of God and he didn't do what he said he was coming to do. And that leaves us, the scriptures say, in our sins without any remedy, without any hope for this life or the next. Church historian Philip Schaff says the resurrection is either the greatest miracle or the greatest illusion which history records. Which is it in your mind? Well, today, I want you to look at Matthew's account. Matthew was one of Christ's followers. He was a tax collector that met Jesus one day, and his life, like Craig's life, was completely changed by his relationship with Jesus. And he gives us the first gospel, Matthew's gospel. And he talks about the resurrection almost like he's presenting the evidence before a jury. And he says, hey, let me show you some evidence. Exhibit A, there's an empty tomb. Exhibit B, there's a resurrected body of Jesus. Exhibit C, there's this wild plan concocted. It's a cover-up plan by the religious leaders. I'm going to present you the evidence. I'm going to let you look it over carefully. And then I'm going to let you give your judgment, your verdict, on the case. And so turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. And if you don't have one here, please take the Bible from the chair rack in front of you, and you can find Matthew 28 in that Bible on page 706. And as we look at this first piece of evidence, let me fill you in on what's happened since Good Friday. Jesus is crucified the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. He died the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And when he died, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he was a wealthy man. He was a man who was part of the religious establishment and the religious leadership, but he was a secret follower of Jesus Christ. And he went to Pilate and he said, Pilate, would you grant me permission to take this man Jesus off the cross and give him a proper burial in my tomb? Permission was granted. And he and Nicodemus, another new follower of Jesus, buried Jesus, wrapping him in the grave clothes. And it was customary in that day, wrapping him with the spices, those clothes and those spices weighing some 75 pounds. They placed him in Joseph's tomb. And then they rolled that heavy stone across the entrance. And the account tells us that there are two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably the Mary, the mother of James and John, who are standing there opposite the tomb, watching it all with that dazed look, not believing what had just happened. It had been a nightmare. Their beloved master had been impaled on a Roman cross. Turn to verse 1, and we pick up the account. After the Sabbath, Sabbath is Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, so it's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And as they went there, something happened. Verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance, this angel, was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. 
So we read verse 2, there's an earthquake. It's not the first time there's been an earthquake this weekend. There was an earthquake at the very point when Jesus died. And the scriptures tell us in the preceding chapter that when Jesus died, the temple of the curtain was torn from top to bottom, symbolic that now there is a way into the very presence of God. It's no longer in a place where we meet with God, the temple. It's now in a person, Jesus Christ. He's made a way to God. And when that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, there also was a seismic earthquake and the rocks were split, Matthew says, and the tombs were broken open and people were raised from the dead. I mean, think about it. If you're trying to make up the story, why in the world would you add this part? I mean, this is so hard to believe. And it says people were raised from the dead at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday when Jesus died and the earthquake sprung them back to resurrection life. And it says, and we saw some of those people walking around, Matthew says, in Jerusalem. And so here's an earthquake. This earthquake wasn't to move the stone. Remember the accounts in the other Gospels says the women were wondering, how in the world are we going to move the stone? Here we are so overcome with our grief. We're going to anoint his body with more spices that we haven't even thought about. How are we going to move the stone? The earthquake wasn't about the stone. The earthquake was about the angel and his entrance. And when he came, he rolled away the stone and he sat on it. Not to get Jesus out of the tomb, but let the women and the disciples in so they could see it firsthand. It's empty. There's nothing there but the grave clothes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen someone faint from fear. I haven't seen that. But boy, I have seen someone shaking in their boots from fear. The guy's name was Jim Surfling. We used to call him Yukon Jack. 6'5", a big, tall drink of water. He was a freshman in my townhouse. I was the resident assistant. I I was supposed to take care of this poor kid, but I did this really mean thing to Jim. We had this all-night movie night. It started out pretty tame, you know, sound of music, all that happy stuff. And it ended with Psycho at like 3 in the morning. So at 5 in the morning... We're coming back to our townhouse, and I realized I got home before Jim did. I'm going to scare the living daylights out of that guy. And if you know anything about the movie Psycho, you know where I hid. (laughs) Not just in the bathroom. Where was I? In the shower. You bet I was. Behind the glass doors. He couldn't see me. And I was waiting for Jim to come and brush his teeth. Jim Surfling dragged his long body across the threshold, clunking his way in, and my heart starts to race. I'm going to get Jim Surfling. I'm going to scare him to death. He never came to the bathroom. (laughs) He was so tired, he just went to bed. But I would not be denied that night. And so I snuck out of the tub, quietly opened up the doors, made my way down the hallway, and at the end of the hallway, I knew just to the right, was Surf's door. And I peeked because I didn't know if it was open, if he was still awake or what. And it was closed, but just a little bit open. Perfect. And I concocted the plan immediately. It's that paper-thin veneer door. I thought, I'll scratch my nails down it, push it open, and give a loud, curdling, blood-curdling scream. Well, I didn't know what Jim was doing because I couldn't see on the opposite side of the, of the door, but I knew his bed was just at the other end of that doorway. 
And so when I came crashing through my screeching nails down that veneer and gave that blood-curdling scream, here was poor Jim sitting up in his bed. You know how we do it, kind of getting the sheets and the covers all nice and tidy and just being a nice kid, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden he is shaking like I have never seen anybody shake. He grabbed those sheets, his knuckles became white, and he convulsed in fear, screaming, like that. I'm telling you, I got so scared by his reaction, I ran out of the room. I've never seen someone get that scared. Well, those guards, these trained soldiers, were so scared they couldn't even let out a squeak because they just, boom, they're out cold. And it's this point that the angel now, verse 5, talks to the women. And the angel said to the women, as the angels often do in scriptures, almost always do, ladies, do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So, fear not, the angel says. He is risen. What did he say? Just as he, Jesus, said. Did Jesus say he was going to rise from the dead? Yeah, he did. Take your Bibles. Go back to chapter 16. Look at verse 21. This is what Matthew tells us about Jesus talking about his death and resurrection. Chapter 16, verse 21. You got it? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now turn over a page, chapter 17, verse 22. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, Jesus said. And that title, the Son of Man, was a title Jesus used to refer to himself. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, verse 23, and on the third day, he'll be what? Raised to life. He says it a third time. Look over in chapter 20, verse 18. Jesus, again, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be what? Raised to life. That's what Jesus said. The angel said, he is risen just as he said. Well, so familiar were Jesus' words, not just to his disciples, but we understand from chapter 27, look down at verse 62, that even the religious leaders, his enemies knew he said it. And so this takes place, verse 62, on Saturday. The next day, the one after preparation day, that's Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, speaking of Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body. 
and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead, this last deception will be worse than the first. And so the angel meets the women and says, women, don't be afraid. Come and see where they lay him. He's not here. He is risen just as he said. And we can assume from the other gospel accounts and from verse 8 that they peeked in and all that they saw at that moment was the empty burial linens of Jesus. Hardly the things that body snatchers would do in a hurry trying to steal their master's body, unwrap him as they made their getaway. And so for the first time, verse 8 tells us that their fear was filled now with joy and they run back to tell the disciples that the empty tomb is a reality. Now we know that the guards also were eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. He'll tell us about their report in verse 11 and following. And they go on to tell the religious leaders everything that had happened, including the angel, the earthquake, the stone being rolled away, and the body being gone. And so Matthew says, exhibit A, the empty tomb. First piece of evidence. Now look down at verse 8. And we pick up the second piece of evidence. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So not only is the tomb empty, but now Matthew presents Jesus' body and he says, I don't have 10 bones in a box. I've got a living, resurrected body. And we know from the scripture account that the women aren't the only eyewitnesses to this. In fact, in a few hours, Luke's going to tell us in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus suddenly appears again. This time to two of his disciples that are leaving Jerusalem, making their way to Emmaus. They are kept by God from recognizing him. And they go through this conversation where they say to Jesus, what? Are you the only one who doesn't know what happened? Jesus Christ was crucified this weekend. A few hours later, Jesus shows up in the upper room. It's one of those suddenly appearances. He doesn't use the door. And all of a sudden, he's there in the room. And everybody there sees Jesus. Thomas isn't there. He sees him a few days later and puts his fingers through his nail prints and puts his hand in the side where the sword plunged through. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and he says in chapter 15 that over the course of the next 40 days, over 500 people could give an eyewitness account that they saw the resurrected Jesus. So Matthew says, exhibit A, the tomb, exhibit B, the body. Now we look at what I call Eastergate, the big cover-up, his third piece of evidence. Look at verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city, that is into Jerusalem, and reported the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, 
you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, to Pilate, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, the cover-up presupposes that the body's missing, right? I mean, this is an easy fix for the religious leaders if their problem is the body's missing and his disciples are going to say, see, he rose from the dead. All you got to do to stop that nonsense is show him the body. You guys are crazy. Here's his body. You're just as crazy as he was when he said he was the son of God. But they didn't have the body, did they? And all they had was a short bit of time to concoct a plan. And man, was it lame. And man, was it desperate. I mean, listen to it. Here's what you're to say, guards. Tell people that you were asleep. And while you were asleep, the disciples snuck in and stole. Well, wait a minute. Did you hear that? You just told me that you were sleeping. So how do you know who stole the body? It's a desperate plan from the get-go. It's a desperate plan in getting Roman soldiers who would be killed if they fell asleep at their post to admit that. Now, there's conjecture. Maybe these are temple guards. These aren't temple guards. They go on Saturday to Pilate, and he grants them a guard, and they're telling him, if Pilate finds out and you get in trouble, we'll satisfy him. We'll pay out some more cash. It's that important to us. It's a desperate plan. The amazing thing is, it worked. Matthew says, I'm writing my gospel. This is sometime in the 50s or the 60s. Jesus dies, AD 33, somewhere around there. This is 20, 30 years later. Matthew says, this story is still widely being circulated among the Jews. People still believe the story concocted way back there. On resurrection day, the disciples stole the body. So Matthew says, there it is. There's the evidence, the empty tomb, the body of Jesus, and Easter gate. It looks like kind of an open shut case, right? You see the evidence? You think, oh man, the jury's going to come to it easy. Well, they don't. The verdict is split decision, hung jury. The women, along with the angels, say, here's our judgment, here's our verdict. He's alive, he is risen. Just as he said, the religious leaders, and now those they've bribed, the guards say, he's a lie. The disciples stole his body. What do you say? What do you say with the evidence this morning? And how in the world do you explain that people with the same kind of evidence and information come to such radically different conclusions. Why would the religious leaders tell a lie to save their own necks and the disciples would proclaim this lie, so to speak, at the cost of their own necks? I mean, one of the greatest defenses of the resurrection is what happens in the lives of Jesus' followers. I mean, here's what we know about this band of men in the recent days. When Jesus was arrested on Thursday, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was dark, and they came with torches, and they weren't going to be sure who Jesus was, and that's why Jesus, Judas had to kiss him so they had a proper identification. Remember what happened? His disciples split. Oh, yeah, John made it all the way into the trial with Jesus. And Peter, close to it, as he was kind of just sneaking along in the shadows. But remember Jesus? Remember Peter? There he is in the courtyard outside of the building where Jesus is being tried. And a little servant girl says, Hey, mister, you talk funny. You're from Galilee. I think you're one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? And he said, Shut up. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that man. Three times, Peter denies him. What do we know about the disciples that weekend since the crucifixion? Man, their knees are knocking and they're hiding out in the upper room. That's where Jesus finds them late Sunday night. What do you think's going through their mind? If they killed our Savior, we could be next. So friends, I would say to you, it is highly unlikely that these men would go out with a message that they knew would be such an offense to the religious leaders of the day that it would throw them in jail. They would have them being mocked and flogged and beaten and stoned. And as many of them did, end up being martyred for their faith. Men who wouldn't stick with their Lord through an arrest, follow Easter, believing a lie to their own death, not very likely at all. And what do you make with the religious leaders? I mean, in the crucifixion account, the people that get who Jesus is, other than his disciples who already know him, there's a thief, a common thief, and then there's a centurion who's in charge of his crucifixion. The thief says, remember me today, Lord Jesus, when you go into heaven. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the centurion says, after seeing Jesus die and seeing the earthquake, surely this man is the son of God. How is it that the religious leaders with the scriptures, with the reports firsthand of Jesus' teaching, of casting out demons, of healing the lame and the blind, of bringing back little girls from the dead and just recently raising his friend Lazarus of Bethany to new life, how is it that they completely Missed it. Well, Paul tells us how it happens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul tells us that there's an enemy. There's an enemy that would blind our eyes so that we can't see the truth. They couldn't see it. I mean, one of the plain teachings of this text is seeing is not believing. It's not believing for everybody who saw. And their blinded eyes led to hardened hearts. And here was their clear conclusion. They knew the implications of Jesus' resurrection were huge. And that's why they rejected Christ and rejected the resurrection. Here's the syllogism. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then he's the son of God. If he's the son of God then he has authority over all things. If he has authority over all things, that means he has authority over us. In fact, look at verse 18 in your text. That's exactly where Jesus goes after the resurrection, before he gives his final marching orders. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. And they weren't ready to relinquish control of their life. And maybe that's where some of us are. I mean, maybe some of us are just like the, those in the, in the video. We don't know. But some of us know the claims of Christ, and quite frankly, you don't want the claims of Christ to come to bear in your life. You like life right now. You like being in control. Friends, control is a mirage. When my wife, Lori, got cancer four years ago and our lives were changed with a phone call, I realized control is a very fragile thing. We delude ourselves in thinking we have control. I was greeting a woman in the atrium and I said, how are you doing? She said, okay. She said, my good friend, he's a young man, 42. He dropped dead. He was a diabetic and he didn't know it. He went into diabetic shock and he died. You read the obituaries this week. You acquaint yourself with the many ways that a person can die and you realize we don't have control. But we think we do. And we think we like life better with us being in control. And friends, that's a delusion and that's a lie. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. But these religious leaders waiting for the Son of God completely missed him. It was the women. It was the women who got it. Why did they get it that Easter morning? Why did his followers get it? Why did the religious leaders miss it? Because seeing is not believing and faith is a gift from God. In this group right here, there's got to be a bunch of us to go, I don't know where I'm at. I know I'm not there. I know I am there. I believe he's alive. He rose. I'm not sure what to believe. I'm sure he didn't. And I'll say to you, the scriptures were given to us that in hearing it, we might believe. And that's what God does. He lets us hear the word. And then he stirs in our heart like Craig was talking about, the spirit at work in our hearts so that we start saying, maybe this is true too. I believe this is true. It's not some cocked up, drummed up. It's faith in a historic Jesus who died and rose again. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? He rose for you. He died for you. He knows you. He loves you. Would you do like the women and fall at his feet and take hold of him and give your life now in worship to him? What you do with Jesus makes all the difference in your life today and forever. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, Open the eyes of our hearts to see you for who you are. Remove the blinders of our own self-sufficiency, of being convinced that miracles can't happen. Remove the blinders of an enemy that doesn't want us to see your goodness. And there's no greater place to see your goodness than the cross and the resurrection. 
take the fears that are represented in this room just as we're represented in that story the first Easter Sunday and like those women would you take our fear and now fill us with joy resurrection joy that is rooted and flows from your son Jesus Christ in his name we pray amen